Welcome, everybody. Life Before Medicine begins right now. I'm Dr. Bruce Crawford. I'm a board-certified urogynecologist, and I'm joined today by Dr. Kent Sassy, board-certified colorectal surgeon. Dr. Sassy has an extensive experience with bariatric surgery, and today's topic is obesity. We're going to talk about it from the doctor's perspective. So let's jump right in. Dr. Sassy, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure to be here. today. I've been looking forward to this uh, since we decided to do it, you know. Yeah. And, and I think especially because the topic is, is totally outside of my wheelhouse. And when I prepare to do one of these podcasts, I always pretend that I'm a patient and, um, and I'm going to try and uh, learn as much as I can via Google search about the topic at hand and, um, and starting, you know, with a very remedial level of understanding about this topic um, taught me a lot just, just kind of looking into it. But then, you know, the, the Internet's just full of good information. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and there's also some bad information. And, uh, and I think we're going to try and tease that apart today and um, separate the wheat from the chaff uh, a little bit. I, I am so struck just, you know, from learning about the actual statistical prevalence of obesity in the United States. And I'm sure it's different country to country. Um, but, you know, the, the numbers are striking. 40% of men, 49% of women. And it's such a stark difference from 30, 40 years ago. Why is that? What changed that that made this epidemic? I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, it's probably just a tad back another decade or two. It's probably more like 50 or 60 years. And uh, you're absolutely right. Um, w- one thing that we always uh, sort of uh, find frustrating is, is that still in the media and among a lot of doctors, you know, the the doctors will say things like, oh, people are just eating too much. But that's clearly not it. Um, the you know the studies are just crystal clear that some things changed in the environment. They had to do with the food supply, and they've had to do with a lot of other elements that we could sort of discuss that are debated. But regardless, this is an environmental disease. So you've taken all of us humans who are sort of designed to live in one environment, and now we've been put in. We're sort of fish out of water. We've been put in a new environment where all the usual stuff we would eat and drink and have in our bodies is now kind of hijacking our biochemistry. It's sort of hijacking our, you know, genetic template and it's pushing us all towards obesity. Well, drill down on that a little bit. Give me, let's, here's some specific examples of, of food stuffs that are different than they were 50 or 60 years ago that are impacting us. Yeah. And this is debated. So what I'll say is that, um, there are a lot of people who are investigating this that have a a thesis that seems pretty compelling to me that uh, around the time the obesity epidemic began uh, is around the time we started to have some improvements in uh, agriculture. And and when I say improvements, I mean they increased the yields. For example, if you sort of follow the hundreds of years long history of wheat, which is one of our main staples, you'll see that around the time of the origin of the obesity epidemic, we moved to a particular strain of wheat, a cultivar, as they say in agriculture, that's called dwarf wheat. 
it's a lot shorter, but it also has a lot higher yield and people felt like it had a lot better mouthfeel. But there's a lot of interesting things about that because wheat has a genome, you know, all the genes that make us up, you know, it's super complicated. Well, wheat, despite being this little grain, has a much larger genome. It's, it's several times larger than the human genome. And do we know what all those genes do? Absolutely not. We have no idea. But we've radically changed that genome. And so we can't really quite yet draw the link to, gee whiz, uh, a new genome of weed has now caused obesity. It's far from that. However, there's starting to be this sort of portrait painted that, hmm, similar changes in weed and soy and corn and most of the major products in food uh, are different, and they're probably affecting our biology differently. Okay, so is it the interaction of the novel wheat species with our genetic material, or is it, or is it also its interaction with the genetic material of the bacteria in our gut, our microbiome? Um, yeah, there, there's, it's kind of early days here in elucidating this science. You'd think that we've had uh, 60 years to work on this, but unfortunately, part of the bias that comes with um, the medical sort of approach to people with obesity has been that it's their fault. And uh, you're just eating too much, and you I need to... I, I, don't we all do that? <laughs> I mean, doctors just are notorious patient blamers when they can't fix something. A hundred percent. Absolutely. So I, I think it's, in my view, it's a tragedy because uh, we're, you know, 20, 30, 40 years too late to the, to the scientific debacle and this epidemic that's um, just horrific. And so it's really, you know, it's shortening the lives, it's creating all kinds of disease and quality of life problems for people. But really the science, to kind of get to the answer of your question, it's not there yet. We don't really know. We, we do know we can point out a few things that we think are risk factors. For example, there's a much higher um, content of antibiotic uh, molecules uh, in, in the environment, in the food supply. And these are introduced in farms. Uh, you know, we know that increasing uh, exposure to antibiotics among livestock will increase the weight of the livestock which translates into a higher sales price for the livestock. And it may also cut down on certain, you know, real infections. But we think it's linked to obesity because, you know, it causes livestock to gain weight. It causes us to gain weight. That, so, you know, it kind of makes me think about how, you know, in medicine, we have lots of drugs that do more than one thing. Like an aspirin might cure your headache, but it also might help you not have a heart attack. Right. Same drug different uh, effect on human physiology um and and so a um you know i think that is is kind of what you're saying is is that a uh, um the same thing that might be helpful to prevent disease vis-a-vis infection like an antibiotic might also have an anabolic effect that is entirely separate from the mechanism by which it prevents infection. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's an unintended consequence. Uh, We know that even giving um, children antibiotics is associated with weight gain in children. Really? Uh, And then this agricultural link may be more pervasive. You know, we may all be ingesting little tiny amounts of antibiotics, but it doesn't stop there. There's all these other additional lines of evidence, such as a lot of fancy compounds that never existed in nature until you know, we dream them up in medicine and in pharmaceutical companies, things like complicated antidepressant molecules and various other psychotropic drugs are also associated with obesity. 
those exist in tiny uh, concentrations in the water supply. Let me tell you how crazy I've become, (laughs) as if it's not obvious. I have developed this almost phobic aversion to using plastic bags in the supermarket in particular. I can't stand it from a waste standpoint to put some tomatoes in a plastic bag and then at checkout, I try not to use plastic bags, but you put them in another bag and then take them home and throw the plastic away and that's just horrifically wasteful. But I also have to believe that packaging of food is very different than it was for almost all of human existence. You know, still, if you're in an open air market in France and you buy a fish, they hand you a fish, <laughs> you know, it's not packaged in three layers of plastic. And, and I just have to believe we must be consuming microparticles of that all the time. And who, and who knows what, what yeah. these hydrocarbon derivatives do to our physiology. Right. And teasing that apart, you know, I, I, I think it might be one of those things that, that we're not going to sit around and wait for the answer because if something gets too multifactorial, you're never really going to be able to come up with a concise explanation right. that says the cause is here, effect is here. If we change cause, we change effect. It's it's so complicated, and, and I think ripe for conspiracy theory. Yeah, for sure. You know. Yeah, and before your audience uh, writes me off thinking I've solved the obesity epidemic with uh, wheat strains. I'm just raising it as an example. These are all avenues of investigation and we really don't know, but there's so many changes. It all happened around this time that the obesity epidemic began and the science has a long way to go to help us figure it out. And it kills people. Absolutely. It kills people. We recently got very, very exercised over a novel infection that killed a lot of people. Yeah. And, and we, as a country and as a global population made really dramatic changes to the way we live for two years and it, and it goes on right it continues and yet we're kind of um what's the word desensitized to these things that have been around for 50 years that i don't i don't know that there is a statistics that, sa- that says this number of deaths per annum in the United States is attributed to obesity. But I'm going to just go ahead and guess it's, it's not all that different from COVID deaths that, um, that we witnessed in the last two years. Yeah. Um, there is some pretty good research that uh, aims at trying to, what, to um, tackle that question and find out what's the, quote, root cause for mortality rate. So someone might die of um, a stroke, uh, but underneath that is the fact that there was a long history of smoking, for example, and so they might attribute a portion of that particular mortality event to smoking, and lots of other examples. So sure. there's some pretty good research that says obesity is the number one cause of preventable uh, underlying risk of death um, and disease as well, and we're probably talking at least several hundred thousand deaths per year in the United States, so probably three, 400,000 deaths per year attributable really to obesity, which is clearly not, attributable to clearly attributable to obesity. Yeah. And that's not too far off of this, you know, supposedly once in a hundred year pandemic that killing half a million people a year. So pretty comparable. And yeah, really striking. Yeah. And, and yet the accommodations made for that epidemic pale in comparison. <laughs> yeah. Right. To what, what we all did right. for two years. It's really seems out of balance to me. 
Yeah. Oh gosh. I know. In our field, it's, it, you can't really even get an audience with politicians to try to sort of, you know, get, get at the root cause here. It's hard to get past the bias of, well, people need to stop eating so much to get the kind of scientific inquiry to, you know, not just treatments, but let's sort of aim for prevention, right? If we figured out really what the key drivers were with all these environmental inputs, we could do something about it. But we right. can't even get the conversation started. Well, you know, and this really strikes home for me as a urogynecologist, you know, I'm very, very aware of the barriers to care that exist within my field. The reluctancy the patient has to address these issues in their lives because of embarrassment and taboos and fear and shame, all these all of these barriers to care are very difficult to overcome. And, and a few years ago, and, and I think this continues, there was some narrative in the media that obesity has been misinterpreted and we shouldn't shame people, I mean, when we ought not, but we shouldn't consider obesity a health risk because lots of obese people are totally healthy and we should stop uh, um, making such a clear association. What do you, have, you, have you heard that narrative and what do you think of it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I think that, uh, you know, for us, we're kind of on the front lines of battling this problem. So, you know, I'll see people every day at all points in the spectrum, but quite a lot of them have already developed pretty severe problems that are related to obesity. You know, you have people in their 40s and 50s who are having to have things like knee replacement surgery or they're taking medications for type 2 diabetes, you know, stuff that they really shouldn't have to do at that age. You know, at this kind of era of, you know, health and safety and modern medicine and good nutrition and water supply, those are things you shouldn't have to face until you're in your 70s. Right. And here they are having to battle these medical problems. And so, you know, in our world, we're long past uh, kind of, um, we, we don't have judgment anymore. We're just trying to help people. We're trying to help them move forward. And I think it's a disservice to sort of tell other people who may not yet need that knee replacement that they don't need to worry about it. Um, right. <laughs> it may not be easy to fix it, and we'll get to that. But, uh, it, you know, it's certainly, I think, more of a service to kind of say, hey, we don't have all the answers yet, but this is definitely a pretty serious health problem, and we got to right. work on it. It, it. But it still appears there is a campaign to normalize it. And, and so much so that I think even a lot of physicians neglect to or at least hesitant to even bring it up with their patient like if you can't talk to your patient about their number one health risk factor especially for surgeons before taking them to the operating room and, and i know you'll agree with me operating on a an obese patient is so much more difficult than a quote-unquote normal weight and it's more dangerous for the patient as well. We know heart disease and strokes, type 2 diabetes, cancer of the uterus, cervix, ovary, breast, colon, rectum, esophagus, liver, gallbladder, pancreas, kidney, prostate, sleep apnea, um, more severe consequence of COVID-19 infection, depression, guilt, shame, social isolation. These are all clearly associated with this problem. That just doesn't sound like a banal problem to me. That sounds like a really serious problem that, yeah, that we need sure. to be comfortable talking to our patients about in a way that does not shame them, but allows them to consider the possibility that there is a way to resolve it. 
Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I think, you know, I, sometimes I want to kind of shake my primary care doctor who's telling me they just feel uncomfortable bringing it up. And I just want to sort of say, shake them and say, listen, get over it. You know, it's, what are you, doing? it's uh, you know, one thing that holds them back, I think, is that they may be still stuck in the wrong mindset of blaming the patient. And so once they're armed with a little bit more knowledge and they realize that this ain't that person's fault, this is a giant environmental problem and this person just happens to be suffering with it, then you really lose a lot of this uh, trouble you have getting the words out and talking about obesity because obesity needs to be talked about. It's not something we're judging you about. And And I think the common thread is having something to offer. Right. And, and so, you know, again, I'm, I am thinking of parallels with, you know, between what you do and what I do um, at work. And, you know, I witness people with pelvic floor disorders all the time being dismissed at the level of primary care because they don't perhaps have a robust understanding of what a pelvic floor disorder is and don't really have anything beyond do some Kegel exercises to recommend. And, and so... When, when you don't have a solution to offer, you're inclined probably to focus on other things. And all of us as physicians have been telling people that smoke to not smoke, and they keep smoking, right? How do you get someone to quit smoking? <laughs> I mean, but if, if you are aggressive about it and you have a smoking cessation program that's implemented and you can show them these are the steps, these are our statistics, are you willing to try? You pro- still aren't going to be hugely successful, but you'll be more successful than if you don't have that kind of algorithm that, or, or a gestalt about the problem that lets you appro- approach it in some kind of coherent way. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And there are so many good tools now to help people uh, improve and uh, reduce their weight and reduce their risks from obesity. There's a little bit of a parallel there with the smoking. Um, smoking cessation is tough, as you know, and that, you know, studies make it seem like you sort of need six or seven or eight sort of solid efforts at it before the average person is able to completely quit. So, you know, a lot of times uh, they hear it for the ninth time from one of their doctors and it resonates and it leads to some behavior change and that, hey, that was worth it. It's true that the prior eight doctors didn't get anywhere, but it was still worth it. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's finally something bad happens. So, right? so it yeah. doesn't kill you, but, you know, you've... You, have your first health event that just scares the hell out of you. Sure, yeah. Right? And and those are the kinds of things that motivate people, right? I always say nobody gets better on a good day, right? right? It t- usually it takes something for most people, I think, to really get their attention and, cr- frankly, create enough fear that they're willing to make some more fundamental changes and maybe get honest about their role. I mean, we've been talking about not blaming the patient, but at the end of the day, patient's behavior has to change. Even if they have bariatric surgery, their behavior has to change. Yeah, it's just like uh, people getting cancer. Um, It may not be your fault, but there are things that you can do to help your outcome and to improve your quality of life and your longevity. So that's the way we treat it. we're here today, and um, so we're going to try to find the best path forward. And there are things you can do to help yourself and live longer and have a higher quality of life. 
Mm-hmm. So let's start with, with a, a patient that shows up in your office, a new patient that has a body mass. Like, so the definition of obesity is a body mass, mass index of greater than 30. Right. But I'm guessing most of your surgical patients have a body mass index greater than 40. Would you say that's true? Yeah, in our uh, published series, it's usually around, the average is around 47 or 48, but we do get people as low as, you know, the high 20s even, and then up into the 90s. So you see a wide spectrum. <laughs> so it would be reasonable to perform a bariatric procedure on somebody with a BMI of 28? Well, we'll jump right to some of the most controversial areas, you know, <laughs> like uh, like a lot of treatments. Um, the deeper you dive into the data, the more sort of interesting it becomes. So, um, so yes, most people who are real familiar with the outcomes data, especially in kind of current, you know, the last 10 years or so, are looking at a procedure with risks that are lower than an appendectomy or a C-section or a gallbladder or just about anything you can name as routine surgery. And then with these pretty substantial long-term payoffs in terms of massive reduction of diabetes risk, huge reductions in cardiovascular risk, sleep apnea, a lot of the things you mentioned. And so you'll find people who've been struggling like crazy to lose their weight and they just can't do it. And they may be getting type 2 diabetes, for example, uh, and their BMI is only 28. And they kind of add up the pros and cons and they go, well, gee whiz, you know, I'll probably be off these medications. I'm probably going to reduce my diabetes risks markedly. There's plenty of data to support that surgery and that group of people. We don't generally think of it. It kind of feels like, oh, that person's too skinny. But part of that is because we're still thinking of it as purely weight loss surgery and we're not thinking of it as metabolic surgery. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about how it works and why the mechanisms do mean that, yes, it might be okay for skinny people too, especially skinny people with diabetes. Interesting. I, I had never considered that. That is surprising to me and incredibly interesting. So now this patient's in your office and, and they have a body mass. This is a hypothetical situation. They have a body mass index of 35 and they've tried every diet and they're so frustrating and like, so many of my patients that I've addressed um, weight loss with, they say things like, doctor, I never eat anything. And, and they are being 100% sincere, whether that is objectively validatable or not, I don't know. But they definitely feel that they are not consuming excessive numbers of calories. Where, where do you begin with these patients? Are you beginning with booking the surgery the next day? Or are there (laughs) steps between I'm Dr. Sassy and the ultimate decision to go ahead and have a surgery? And and maybe, and I know there are steps, so maybe if you could kind of just lay out in um, broad strokes what what those steps are as someone um, uh, begins to approach this problem with a surgeon. And I'm going to assume the majority of the time they really haven't gotten a lot of support before they came to you in terms of non-surgical options. So, so what do you do to make up that deficit? Yeah, uh, well, a few things to unpack there. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that last little part first, that very often they um, people do come, well, as you said earlier, that sometimes something bad has happened. You know, it's not uncommon that people are told that, oh, now that hemoglobin A1C has crossed into full-blown type 2 diabetes territory. That's kind of the, you know, the measure of blood sugar that we track long-term. And once it crosses over 6.3%, all of a sudden now I have a new diagnosis. It is scary. 
or something else has happened health-wise, and so that'll prompt the visit. Um, and then, yeah, there is a bit of a, a, a quite a long process, actually. It's usually many months before we ever get to surgery. And, um, and you're absolutely right that people come in and they've had, I mean... Uh, most people have had just terrible support. Support is not the word. They have, <laughs> they have been treated poorly. Let's just say that. <laughs> and uh, so we start, you know, I think it's refreshing for a lot of people to kind of come to doctors who get it and who are familiar with the disease. If I could just take a quick detour and just say, you know, it's kind of weird for surgeons. We're sort of thought of as the, I don't know, the people who come in and cut and then go away. And we're not the people who have a deep bonding or understanding perhaps of the patient or the disease process. That is the reputation. <laughs> but, but bariatrics is a little funny that way because, um, because the rest of the medical community is so much, uh, has so abandoned the problem of obesity. What you find is that the bariatrics, ter- bariatric surgeons tend to have gone and uh, had a really deep dive into obesity and the mechanisms of obesity and the theories about the mechanisms and, what's causing it, and a lot about the hormonal physiology that we think is driving it and how the treatments are evolving. And so, you know, you really have very few other specialists that you could turn to who have a similar expertise. So uh, so most of the time, they're kind of hearing things they just haven't heard before. You know, they come in and no one is telling them to, you know, quit eating and exercise more. Obviously, that's going to be part of their overall sort of treatment objective, but not told to them in the same way, like, hey, this is your fault. You need to eat less and exercise more. It's more like, we know how you got here. We know that this is a catastrophic environmental problem. Here's the solutions that have come along. And so let's start talking about them and see what feels like a fit for you. So we start with a lot of education, basically, and kind of begin a conversation. And so of of 100 patients that show up in your office wanting to have their obesity treated, what percentage end up having a surgical procedure? Um, I would say it's about 50%. Um, I mean, keeping in mind that, you know, we do hang our shingle out as bariatric surgery center of excellence. So <laughs> we, we've we sort of advertised ourselves as having that card to play. And in truth, uh, you know, there is no other card to play that is anywhere near as effective and arguably as safe. So you know, there's a reason for that, but I would say about 50%. And, and so the other 50% that are able to take an off-ramp, are they giving up and disappearing, or are they not getting surgery because they were successful with the conservative means and education and programs that you've introduced them to? Um, well, I will say that the vast majority of them do embark upon the programs that we introduce them to, and that'll include uh, some dietary counseling, some... Uh, exercise counseling, um, some regular old mental health counseling. We have psychologists that work in our office. Um, and uh, I know it's a little odd to have surgeons employing psychologists and dietitians, but that's the nature of this problem. And then we frequently will use one of the pharmaceutical um, options. There have been a bunch of FDA-approved drugs in the last 10 years or so. I guess. What the part of your question uh, that I can't unfortunately tell you with um, uh, any sort of honesty is that they quote find success with that off-ramp unfortunately the data about all of those things I just mentioned is not very good Um, what it shows in over and over and over and you know really big well-funded studies is that people who embark on a program like that even with the 
best intentions and the best motivation and the best support staff, they will lose weight for the first year or two at the outside. And then the weight regain occurs and it kind of reverts back to what we refer to as the physiologic set point. This is a sort of a more intrinsically derived uh, kind of homeostasis, like your you know, set point of your furnace at home when you put it on 72 degrees and leave. And we really haven't been able to overcome that without surgery. So um, I always tell people, listen, it doesn't mean we don't keep trying. <laughs> I mean, we're still, we're still eager to give this a try. And some of the new medicines may help bend that curve a little. But, but if you really look at the data, you know, even the people who just are putting themselves all out there on, on a program like The Biggest Loser, where they've got great counseling, incredible motivation, incredible exercise, etc., they all regain their weight at the two-year mark. Um, that was studied by the National Institutes of Health. Um, and again, it's not their fault. This is the programming. This is their hormonal programming that is reverting them back to that set point weight. Well, that's discouraging. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say and, so. Yeah. And I mean, and despite that, I'm guessing we have a billion dollar or multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical uh, ar- array of pharmaceuticals. Um, and we don't have to go through all of these. Is, are there some that you recommend more than others? And then I want to follow that up by hearing what your opinion of metformin is in the context of weight loss. Yeah, Um, I'm a big fan of metformin, uh, but we'll come back to that. So, yes, so the most recent, uh, the last couple of years, the FDA has approved in quick succession a whole bunch of drugs that are all kind of the same mechanism. Uh, So we've seen this in, in every other field, you know, when there was a good high blood pressure medicine that works by a particular mechanism all of a sudden there'll be three or four or five or six or seven me too drugs and they're slightly different. The compound is different, but they work on the same receptor. They, you know, they're a beta blocker or or whatever the mechanism is. So that's what's happened in the last few years. We have a whole bunch of these drugs that activate a particular hormone in the body. That's called GLP one. And it's interesting because it's kind of taking a page from metabolic surgery or bariatric surgery because GLP one is known to go up and stay up after bariatric surgery And for a long time, at least a number of years, a lot of us thought that maybe that was kind of one of the key mechanisms that made bariatric surgery so successful. You know, hey, this key hormone goes up, it causes weight loss, it causes satiety, causes loss of hunger, causes less fat storage, lower blood sugar. These seem like great things. And it seems to be very durable. The the level stays up even years later after this, you know, kooky surgery on the intestines and stomach. And so a lot of people thought, well, hey, maybe this is just a GLP-1 surgery. Uh, turns out that GLP-1 is just one of about, you know, three, four dozen of these key hormones that change and seem to change permanently that in kind of their whole sort of array of actions, this big family of hormones is what creates this long-term change in body weight and blood sugar. It's not just the one thing. In fact, GLP-1 probably doesn't matter at all. (laughs) Unfortunately, there's some great, uh, animal studies that show that. But anyway, the drug companies got wind of this and they uh, started manufacturing GLP-1 agonists. That's what we call a drug that causes that hormone to go up. And now we have five or six of them. And I'm all for it. Uh, you know, we, tr- we prescribe them a lot. The, the, the data shows that people will lose some weight with it. Um, early ones looked like six, 7% of body weight. This most recent one called Wegovi has gotten a lot of headlines because the... Um, you know, pharmaceutical uh, drug company funded studies show that it had a much higher weight loss, something more like 24%, something like that, which would be potentially kind of game changing. Um, However, you know, these are not long term studies yet. And we definitely do not have the kind of validation, none of the other GLP-1 agonists have shown this. So while I'm super hopeful, 
you know, I'm also a little skeptical. Um, but we do prescribe them. The problem that we really run into right now is all of those drugs, all those GLP-1 agonists, they're still on the patent of the drug companies. No health insurance policy that we deal with covers them. So that's a whole nother public policy problem. And they're expensive. And they're incredibly expensive, like twelve, thirteen hundred dollars a month. So it's ridiculous. Conceivably, indefinitely slash forever. <laughs> Maybe. Well, at some point they'll go off patent and we'll have uh, generic GLP one agonists probably well, that's in, a seven years process. Yeah, seven years. So we're probably, you know, four years away from that. Extraordinary. And and you know having the opportunity to prescribe and or as a patient to consume drugs that haven't been um, around long enough to really say with certainty what the long-term consequences are, I think warrants uh, conservatism. We all remember Fenfen, and and we still prescribe one of the Fens with Topramate, I think, as as a uh, weight loss drug. But you know, it turned out there were serious cardiac consequences um, and from from taking that combination, the not the new one with topramate, but the original fenfen. And and we learn this lesson. We don't learn this lesson. We ex- <laughs> no. we experience this lesson over and over and over again in medicine. You know, um, you know. COX-2 inhibitors and thalidomide and DES and the original dosing of oral contraceptives. And like, oh, geez, I guess shouldn't have done that. And yet somehow, while people are doing it, this this behavior, this medical practice has worked its way into the mainstream. It has become standard of care. So much so that I think there, there were times when DES was being prescribed, that if you didn't prescribe it, you could potentially be liable. Yeah. You know? And and so, so we need to be so cautious, I think, about um, becoming overzealous with the prescription of uh, medication that we just don't have a track record yet that we can say, okay, well, the 20-year data shows us that there aren't, long-term unforeseen unforeseen consequences yeah i agree with you it's it's tough when those complications take a long there's a long lag time for some serious complications we, we really don't have a system that's equipped to deal with that you know uh, and that's in a way that's kind of what we're dealing with with this whole ep- obesity epidemic we've we've changed some things we don't know quite what they were but they had a long lead time of creating a massive obesity epidemic and you know actually collectively reducing the life expectancy of our populace and massively increasing healthcare costs and impairing quality of life. And some of those changes happened 50, 60 years ago, and there were probably policies that approved, you know, changing the corn, wheat, and antibiotics, and all kinds of other things that could never possibly take this into account, right, you know? Right, right, And the, you're right about the drugs. The If I could just say the fenfluramine was the, the bad actor, so that caused some cardiac valvular disease in people. And I do want to say that the other half of it, fentramine, has been a generic drug that's been around for many decades, and it's super safe. It's it's about as safe as caffeine. So mm. we do prescribe that one plenty. I think it's somewhat helpful. It's kind of a mild appetite suppressant. It's about like a cup of coffee. You know, it, you might feel a little pick-me-up of energy. You might have a little appetite suppression. And, it, and there's studies that show that, you know, it does help augment a little bit of weight loss. Uh, again, uh, you know, those long-term studies are really sort of lacking for any kind of durable success, but... Uh, but 
you know, when you're, when you're fighting such a difficult battle, um, you know, you, I always am reluctant to <laughs> disparage the few arrows that I do have in my quiver to try to battle this really terrible disease of obesity. So uh, we're, we're happy to have fentramine, even though it's, you know, it's not great. Right. But it's, it's a sympathomimetic. Yeah, right? it, exactly. And, and, you know, anyone that's gone through about a severe grief will often lose weight. Sure. Like if you're baseline sympathetic tone goes up right you're getting divorced or your spouse passes away or you lose a child heaven forbid um it's clear that there is an appetite suppressant effect from that emotional state and and maybe these um sympathomimetic drugs are, are replicating that in some yeah, measure some element of it right interesting so i want to talk about the procedures that are available to people in, in just a little bit of detail, um, and a um, and and so there's a, just uh, quite a number of different bariatric procedures, and um, and maybe I'll just leave it to you to try and break <laughs> down <laughs> the ones that you think are um, most reasonable um, mm-hmm. to to recommend and and perform. I mean, I've written down a, a number of them. Endoscopic sleeve, gastroplasty, intragastric balloon, adjustable gastric band, gastric bypass with a Ruin Y, um, gastric sleeve. What do you, th- what, what is your, your approach when you're de- deciding which procedure you'd suggest or which procedures you'd, you'd offer to a patient? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It is kind of an alphabet soup also to untangle. And also uh, we're living in this uh, world where, you know, nothing you put on the internet ever dies. So you have these procedures that may have come and gone 20, 30 years ago, but they kind of live on because (laughs) you can search for them and they'll come up in a, (laughs) in a list of procedures. So I would say to give a sort of 2022 snapshot, the most widely performed procedure around the world and in the United States uh, goes by the name of sleeve gastrectomy or laparoscopic sleeve gastrectomy. Uh, Some people use a term vertical sleeve gastrectomy. Those are all the same thing. Basically what's happening there is that the surgeon is um, going in usually through really small incisions with the minimally invasive surgery or the laparoscopy, the kind where you don't get a big cut, but you wake up with some small band-aids. Some people like to use that robotic technology and basically those are all the same if you're on the receiving end of those, you know, (laughs) you walk out with some band-aids. Uh, and, and what happens is that the surgeon is targeting this outer part of the stomach tissue itself. Uh, so if you sort of, uh, you know, pull up a diagram of the stomach or an illustration of it online, you'll see that you have this kind of curved shape, sort of, uh, you know, wide, wide looking, funny shaped thing there. And, um, the surgeon will trim off and just completely remove the outer part of the stomach, maybe about three quarters of it in many cases, something like that, at least by volume, you know, over half of the stomach tissue itself. And the reason that is what is done is that all this kind of science that's evolving about the hormonal effects and this, we mentioned GLP-1 and this alphabet soup of many, many other of these hormones that regulate body weight and blood sugar a lot of them emanate from that tissue itself right there in that stomach tissue, or they're kind of regulated by other signals from that area of the stomach tissue. So that when you go and trim that off, uh, you have this wholesale change. You've just shaken up the entire dynamic. It's like reaching down into the control box of our, uh, you know, weight regulation computer. And we've now changed the dials in a permanent way. And it seems to have these long-term durable hormonal effects that, um, change that set point 
for the long haul, and they change the baseline blood sugar. It also seems to have some favorable effects on fat storage, particularly in the liver. It has a whole bunch of effects that happen even without losing weight. So um, you have sort of created this fundamental change. In any case, that procedure, even though it sounds kind of uh, spooky and invasive to take off or remove a whole bunch of your stomach, we've known in surgery that, you know, the stomach is... Uh, pretty robust, and you can remove a whole bunch of it without a lot of effects, a lot of bad effects for the person. You can even remove the entire stomach and makes uh, eating uh, a little bit different, but actually over time, it kind of normalizes. Um, in fact, just to give a little detour, back when I was a resident, we used to do total gastrectomies a fair amount at the University of California, San Francisco, where I was, and as the intern or second year resident, I was sometimes tasked with going in and talking to the families and explaining what we had done and telling the person what life was going to be like eating afterwards. And even with no stomach whatsoever, you know, we would say that you're going to need to eat six small meals a day. But interestingly, the body has a way of accommodating. And in the few years, you'll probably be able to eat a cheeseburger like everybody else. Uh, it may not feel all that different. But right now, you're going to have to slow it down. <laughs> and there are other things, though, that the stomach does that you would not want to do without, like if you're going to absorb B12 and avoid getting a pernicious anemia, something like that. So yeah. how do you accommodate those risks? Like perhaps there's lots of benefits, but maybe there's some things that are really aren't immediately beneficial or po possibly detrimental to a patient. How do yeah. you deal with that? Yeah. Um, and of course, everything, there's always a, you know, several ways of looking at these things, you know, as they evolve, is it better than the last thing right, 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 <laughs> or right. how bad is it? So, uh, this, uh, is better than the last thing with the last thing being gastric bypass or other bypass type procedures, which, um, did exactly what you were mentioning that they created situations where we didn't absorb important nutrients like B12. Um, but it turns out that you can remove, you know, 70 or 80% of the stomach without having a huge effect on that. You still have secretion of the the things that have to bind those vitamins and iron and B12, intrinsic, intrinsic factor. factor. Yeah, exactly. I remember things from medical school. <laughs> exactly. You got a good memory. <laughs> and, uh, um, but there is a little risk. So what you tend to see is these real mild drifts of uh, a couple of things like B12 if people don't take any vitamins. Um, and it's really not in everyone. It's only in, you know, a portion of people who undergo the procedure. In contrast to prior procedures, which were much more aggressive, and they would cause everyone to have vitamin deficiencies. So we spent a lot of time chasing our tail, really trying to get people to take a whole bunch of vitamins. Well, that is really good to know. And, and I would like you to speak just briefly um, about some of the more common complications. I get the sense that the, the surgery has become... Uh, much safer than it used to be because the surgery itself has become more conservative in most cases, but there are always risks. So what, what can go wrong? Yeah, the number one risk with any sort of gastrointestinal surgery from, and you sort of think of it head to toe, you know, think of the esophagus all the way down to the rectum. And we have to do surgery on all these areas for a bunch of reasons, you know, tumors, other conditions that you just have to take out part of those areas in order to solve some serious problem. And the number one risk is always a leak at the connection or the reclosure of whatever that was. So if it was in the esophagus, it's in the stomach in this case, the bowels, whatever you do, you're having to sort of cut, remove some tissue, and then you're having to reconnect, re-sew it together, staple it together, put it together in a way that 
all those bacteria and bugs and kind of harsh enzymes that are on the inside of our gastrointestinal system, what we never, never want is for them to be on the outside of our gastrointestinal system and just going, causing havoc in the peritoneal cavity or in the belly itself. And so a leak uh, is the number one problem. It's a, it's a serious problem. It usually would require going back into surgery or having some treatments. If your surgeon and your center are experienced and they're doing a good job, that should be really rare. It's gotten way down now. It's probably one in a thousand, somewhere in there. To have a leak at all. To have a leak, yeah. With sleeve gastrectomy. So with this kind of the most widely done procedure, uh, you know, at a reasonable place with a, you know, well-trained surgeon, you're talking kind of a one in a thousand risk for that particular thing, which is the most serious problem. But with the older procedures like the Ruin Y, like, gastric bypass yeah now it's more like one in a hundred so percent risk of a leak and if you are unfortunate and i always say if you're the one percent it doesn't feel like one percent no so if that's you you're looking at additional surgery but what is the mortality rate associated with a leak after a procedure yeah it's pretty high it's probably upwards of 10 percent, something like that so it's pretty significant um after especially with gastric bypass or some of the other less commonly done um, bypass type procedures. And so for that reason, you know, the sleeve gastrectomy, despite uh, some arguments that it maybe isn't aggressive enough, maybe the weight loss results long term are not quite as much as gastric bypass or uh, uh, duodenal switch is the name of a kind of an aggressive bypass procedure. But, you know, despite it maybe being a close second in terms of the magnitude of long-term weight loss and diabetes reversal, it's so much safer and so much simpler and has so many fewer side effects and complications that it's it's continued to win out as being the preferred procedure. And what's the hospitalization time after that procedure? Uh, typically overnight. You know, one or two nights is just about everybody. Seems like about two-thirds of people go home uh, after an overnight stay, and the remainder might stay one more night. And are people paying cash for this, or is the, are there insurance companies covering it? A few are. The insurance companies have come around um, slowly but surely. They've gradually absorbed the data. You know, this 20 years ago, I would have thought we're right on the verge of uh, all bariatric surgery being widely covered by every health plan. <laughs> but it shows how naive I was that, uh, you know, we would get there. But you know, fast forward to 2022 and we're, you know, Medicare, uh, most state Medicaid programs, TRICARE, any federal health plan, basically, you know, in Nevada, certainly, and in most states, any public plan uh, covers it. But you got to jump through some hoops to get them to cover. I mean, if you could jump through hoops, you wouldn't need bariatric surgery, right? I mean, what do you have to do to demonstrate to the payer that this is indicated and therefore covered? Yeah, like all kinds of treatments today, they have a sort of a checklist of criteria that they will want fulfilled. Uh, some of them are evidence-based and some of them are just really going back to this bias about what obesity even is. But typically they include that people meet the BMI criteria. So, um, And that does track mostly uh, a lot of inter- you know international medical guidelines like the American Diabetes Association, for example. Um, so if you have a BMI of 35 or greater and there is type 2 diabetes or hypertension uh, or some other health problems, then they generally will cover it. And if your BMI is over 40, they generally don't ask too many other questions. It, they'll cover it you know, pretty much regardless of what other diagnoses a person has. But then you're right, they often have a checklist of a few additional things they want and they won't pay for it until a person has had a mental health evaluation, has had a nutritional evaluation, 
In some cases, they've uh, created these onerous hurdles like you have to do four or six months of, quote, medically supervised weight management. And so uh, so there are a lot of hoops to jump through. You're right. Yeah, yeah, it sounds challenging. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed talking to you about this today <laughs> and how much I've learned um, from you and from the research I did in anticipation of getting to talk to you. It is a real privilege. And... Um, I'm going to just guess there's going to be lots of other people that would like to have that privilege. How can people meet with you, learn about you, follow you? What are some of your points of contact? Well, I write a lot of articles, mostly on a blog that uh, I post, you know, several things a month on articles, topics, things like that. And you can find that um, at uh, nevadasurgical.com. We've, we've recently kind of grown and rebranded as Nevada Surgical. It used to be all sassy surgical, but that felt a little self-indulgent. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have a new partner. Now. Yeah, we have a new partner, a couple of great surgeons. So uh, nevadasurgical.com, and, and uh, that's the easiest way to reach out. Outstanding. This has been outstanding. I want to thank everybody for sharing some time with us today. I don't have to hope you got a lot out of it. I know you did. And I look forward to our next episode. We'll be dropping them every week. This is Life Before Medicine. We'll be in touch. You'll be in touch too.